Well, take your Bibles and let's turn back to Matthew chapter 2, that text that I read earlier in our service. Probably no other biblical text related to the birth of Christ has been embellished and romanticized more than this one, than the visit of the Magi. Matthew was the only gospel writer to mention these men and their encounter with Christ, and yet he didn't tell us a whole lot about these mysterious travelers who seemed to appear out of nowhere to pay homage to Christ and leave their gifts and then return to their homeland never to be heard from again. And the lack of specific details about the wise men has led to a lot of speculation over the years and has resulted in many myths and legends and misconceptions that have even found their way into the belief system of many Christians. And these common misconceptions are portrayed in manger scenes and greeting cards and Christmas carols that we sing and Christmas pageants and Christmas shows. It's typical to see three kings either bowing down before baby Jesus in a stable alongside the shepherds and a variety of farm animals. Um, The Little Drummer Boy, one of my favorite childhood TV shows, shows the three kings there at the moment of Christ's birth. Um, We uh, sing the song, We Three Kings of Orient Are. Uh, Again, there's an assumption that there was three kings because there were three gifts mentioned in the text. Um, We assume that they're kings, when more likely they were king makers, and the idea of the Orient, some might think they're from the Far East, or whether that's China or India, some traditions say, one of the wise men is often depicted as a black man who supposedly traveled from Ethiopia, and again, showing the African nations, all the nations of the world converging uh, at the birth of Christ. Um, Medieval tradition says that they had names, Casper, Melchior, and Belshazzar. In fact, there's a gold shrine in in the Cologne Cathedral in Germany, which is apparently the, the largest cathedral in Europe, and they have this sarcophagus, a gold-encased, basically, a casket um, that's said to house the skeletons of the Magi that they discovered in the Middle Ages. And there's three gold-crowned skulls that protrude from one end of the the casket. It's kind of creepy looking, to be honest with you. You can go online and look at it. Um, Again, I think this is just another example of how the Catholic Church over the years has faked holy relics uh, so people can come and worship and somehow find uh, some intimacy with Christ uh, through these things. And again, I think there's an assumption that these wise men visited Jesus on the night of his birth. In fact, we even are using um, a graphic tonight that shows them coming to uh, the place of Christ's birth. However, there are a few details that Matthew did include in this text that help correct that unbiblical notion. The first one is the number of times he mentions the word child Verse 9 would be an example, verse 11. He uses the Greek word uh, pedion, which is the word for a child or more of a toddler, whereas 
the, the word used in Luke, for example, that Sam read, uh, uses a different Greek word, which means a newborn. So it seems that there was a distinction here between a baby and more of a, a toddler, if you will. Uh, it also says in verse 11 that the wise men entered the house, not the cave or the you know, stable where Christ was born. And so this is likely the residence of Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem. By this time, they had found a place to live and raise their little one. And then verse 16 talks about Herod not executing all the baby boys born on a certain night in Bethlehem, but all the male children in Bethlehem up to two years old. And so based on these little details, I think that we can assume here, uh, rightly, uh, that the Magi visited Jesus a year or two after Christ was born. Um, He was, again, probably a toddler by this time. Now, I don't tell you this so that you go home tonight and or go home tomorrow or today, whenever, you go home today, and uh, find your wise men and take them and, you know, throw them away, you know, because they're part of your crush scene on your mantle or table, wherever you have that, or your front yard. Um, I think many manger scenes are merely attempting to depict all that is wrapped up in the biblical account of the birth of Christ. And in fact, if you're going to throw away the wise men, then you also need to rip off the star right, that's above the, the, the manger there, uh, because that wasn't there either. Uh, if you want to go with this chronology that Matthew kind of fills in the gaps for us here, uh, my point is I simply want to make sure that the chronology of the events surrounding Christ's birth is clear in, in our minds, and, and, it's, and that what we believe about this familiar feature of the Christmas story is not based on myths or legends, but the truths of Scripture, And so tonight, I I want to, or this morning, I'm sorry, I'm thinking about last night still, um, but this morning, what I want to explain to you is this story of the Magi, and just suggest to you how it applies to our lives. And, And so what I want us to see this morning is in the account of Magi's, the Magi's visit to Jesus, there are three ways people respond to Jesus, three ways people respond to Jesus. The first two are foolish responses, and the last one is a wise response. And every one of us in here this morning will respond to Jesus in one of these three ways. The, the first response is belligerence. Belligerence. And we see that exemplified by Herod, who opposed Christ. Notice verse 1. And after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For he saw his star, for he saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. So we're introduced here to Herod, who was the king at the time of Christ's birth. This was Herod the Great who ruled over Palestine from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. Uh, His father had done some favors for the Romans, and as payback, the Herod family had been given the right to rule over Judea, which was under Roman domination. And at Herod's coronation, Caesar Augustus had given him the title, you ready for this? King of the Jews. And he liked that title. 
And he was known by that title up until his death. Ironically, however, he was not a Jew. He was rather an Idumean, which meant he was a descendant of Esau. And if you know the history of Israel, Esau was Isaac's firstborn son who God rejected and chose instead his little brother Jacob to be the father of Israel. And so technically, Herod's people were traditionally enemies of the Jews. And yet he tried to gain the Jews' loyalty by rebuilding their temple, by supposedly converting to Judaism. And yet most Jews hated him, never truly accepted him as their king, even though he tried to do a lot for their country. And so when Herod heard that there was some prominent foreigners inquiring in Jerusalem about the recent birth of the king of the Jews, he was troubled. And obviously that was a threat to his rule, to his role, to his position, his title as the king of the Jews. Well, Herod's paranoia was legendary. He was very cruel. He was very conniving. In fact, when he came to power, he murdered all the Hasmoneans who were the sons of the Maccabeans who had revolted against the rulers of Greece. And so he wanted to make sure that, that they didn't do that to him. And so he simply slaughtered them all. He even had members of his own family murdered who he considered a risk to his reign. He murdered his wife, uh, wives, uh, his brothers, his sons. In fact, the Roman Emperor Augustus said that it was better to be Herod's sow than his son because his sow had a better chance of surviving. His last ruthless act of a life of plotting and, and executing was to imprison the most distinguished citizens in Jerusalem and command that they be slaughtered the moment he died. And the reason why he did that, and he quoted, he said this, quote, the people will not weep when I die, and I want them weeping even if they weep over someone else. So it's no wonder that he responded the way he did when the Magi showed up in search of the king of the Jews. The merciless massacre of, of innocent babies and, and toddlers was all in a day's work for Herod. I mean, this was characteristic of his, his, his diabolical career. One commentator described his reign as one of carnage, bitter hatred, suspicion, and terrible atrocities. This is the man before who the Magi appeared, a dangerous, suspicious, crafty, unscrupulous tyrant. Let's continue to look at our story. Verse 4, gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So when Herod heard that there were some Magi snooping around wanting to know the whereabouts of this new king, he quickly assembled the Jewish religious leaders to find out where the Messiah was to be born. And so he asked the chief priests and, and the scribes who were the experts in the Old Testament scriptures, and they immediately referenced Micah chapter 5 verse 2, which identified Bethlehem as the precise location of the birthplace of the Messiah. 
Notice verse 7, then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. So Herod pulled the wise men aside in secret, inquired of them when the star appeared, signifying the birth of this king. So he had the, he had the coordinates, right? He, he knew the, the whereabouts now of this king. He knew where he was. He wanted to know now the timing, the time frame of, all, of it all. And then he officially sanctioned their search for the newborn king and told them to let him know as soon as they had found him so that he could also visit him. And he pretended here like he, he wanted to worship him when what he really wanted was to, to kill him. And so Herod's response to Jesus Christ was one of belligerence. He was hostile toward Christ. He opposed Christ because he was afraid he would take away his throne. And I think there are many people today who respond to Jesus like, like Herod did. They, they fear that Jesus Christ will take away their throne, their ability to rule their lives, to live the way they want to live, to go where they want to go and do what they want to do with whoever they want to do it with and wherever they want to do it. They see Jesus as a, a threat to their independence, their, their self-determination. They, they think he will interfere with their career, their position, their, their ambitions, their plans for their lives. And so they refuse to bow their knee to Christ because they want to be the king of their life. They don't want to give up control of their lives, and so they are not about to bow the knee and submit to Christ. But it was Christ himself who said this in Matthew 16, verse 25, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? So we see one potential response to Christ, and that is belligerence, opposition. There's a second response, and that is indifference. Indifference, and we see that exemplified by the religious leaders who ignored Christ. Again, back in verse 4, it says that Herod gathered together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people. This was the religious elite of Israel. These were the theologians. These were the Bible heads. They knew the scriptures better than anyone. And that's why they knew exactly where to turn in, in scripture to find the prophecy of the Messiah's birthplace. And yet even though they knew what the Old Testament taught about the coming of their Messiah, they didn't care enough to go check it out themselves. They were, they were only five miles from the Son of God, and they didn't take the time to go see him. I mean, just to put that into perspective, that's like driving up to, to Sonic here on 105. It's not very far. But they didn't go. 
Whereas the Magi traveled hundreds of miles risking life and limb to find Jesus. And again, it's astounding to me that these were the most religious people on the planet at the time. And they just didn't care. They were indifferent. They were, they were apathetic. And their Messiah wasn't that important to them. They didn't feel the need for him. Why? Because they were self-righteous. They kept the law. They maintained all their religious traditions. And again, I think there's lots of people in the world today who respond to Christ like the religious leaders did. They believe they're already all that God wants them to be. They're good people. And they maintain the rules and the rituals of their religious system, which makes them feel right with God when they really aren't. They don't think they need Jesus because they don't realize how sinful they are. They don't understand their need of salvation. And, and it's interesting, they may even know lots of Bible verses and even know a lot about Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. And I think you would agree with me that religion is one of Satan's craftiest tools that he uses to keep people from truly knowing Jesus Christ and experiencing the reality of a personal relationship with him. J.C. Ryle is one of my favorite um, dead guys, I guess. He's got a great uh, little commentary called Expository Thoughts on the Gospels. And this is what he said in his section on Matthew. He said, and I'm quoting here, how often the very people who live nearest to the means of grace are those who neglect them the most. The fact that you're sitting here in church this morning is putting you in this category of someone who is nearest to the means of grace. You're being exposed to the grace of God in Christ through his word. He said, there is only too much truth in the old proverb, the nearer the church, the further from God. Familiarity with sacred things has an awful tendency to make men despise them. There are many who from residence and convenience ought to be first and foremost in the worship of God and yet are always last. And I think that applies to us, of course, here in America, even here in our own community, living in the Bible Belt. I mean, from where we live, our residence, and how convenient it is for us to find a church to worship at. And yet, we are always last. He said, there may be knowledge of Scripture in the head while there is no grace in the heart. He said, let all of us beware of resting satisfied with head knowledge. It is an excellent thing when rightly used, but a man may have much of it and yet perish everlastingly. You may be here this morning as one who doesn't openly oppose Christ. You would never do that. In fact, you may come to church every Sunday, and you know what the Bible says, but you choose to ignore what you know is true, and as a result, you're unmoved, you're, you're unaffected by all of this, which is evidence that you are not on your way to heaven, but you are headed for hell. 
And so 2 Corinthians verse 6, verse 1, chapter 6, verse 1, excuse me, says this, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Behold, today is the day of salvation. So there's belligerence, there's indifference. Those are the two foolish ways to respond to Christ. But there's a third way, a wise way, and that is reverence, reverence. And we see that, again, exemplified by the Magi who worshiped Christ. Notice verse 1, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And so here are these men. Again, we don't know how many of them came. But I would imagine in light of the fact that they came from the east and had to travel uh, a great distance, there was probably an entourage that included these men, these wise men, these magi, but also armed guards, soldiers, because they were traveling through enemy territory and uh, across uh, the desert, um, and so there was probably a lot of people with them, but it's, it, it says that they're from the east, and again, this is not the far east, but the region just beyond the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. This is ancient Persia. This is modern-day Iraq or, or eastern, uh, or excuse me, modern-day Iran or eastern Iraq. You say, well, who are these magi? Well, they were a special cast of, of wise men specializing in medicine, science, the occult, astronomy, astrology. In fact, they were referred to as students of the stars. The word magi is where we derive our words magic and magician. And these men played an active role throughout the Babylonian and Mesopotamian region during much of the Old Testament era. Uh, they served as the scientists, the mathematicians, the philosophers, the soothsayers, the, the legal authorities, the advisors to the kings of their day. In fact, our word magistrate comes from the word magi. And so they rose to, to places of prominence and influence in the Babylonian, Medo-Persian, and Greek empires. And whether you realize it or not, the most well-known magi in the Old Testament was Daniel. Remember that guy? Turn back to Daniel with me quickly and notice how Daniel is described in his prophecy. Daniel chapter 1, as you know, Daniel was one of the young men who was taken into exile to Babylon. And the Babylonians were looking for young men that they could train up in the ways of the Magi and be useful to the king. And so apparently Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as they were named, um, showed promise. And so they were put in this special training program. And, it, and when it was all done, in Daniel chapter 1, verse 20, it says, As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm. You say, well, who are these guys? Well, these were the guys the king relied on to help him interpret dreams that he had, 
And so we learn a little bit about them in chapter 2, verse 2. The king had a troubling dream. And it says the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the magi, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. And, and this was a challenging task because the king said, you know, I know how you guys work. I tell you a dream and you guys just make something up. But I want you to tell me what I dreamed and then tell me what it meant. And they're like, well, who can do that? And so he says, well, off with your heads. And Daniel appealed and said, wait, king, let me pray and ask the Lord to give me insight into your dream. And so he really rescued all of the Magi at the time from death. And it says in chapter 2, verse 48, the king promoted Daniel. Again, this is after he not only told him what his dream meant, but he actually told him his dream. And then he told him what it meant. The king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Chapter 4, verses 7 through 9. Again, Nebuchadnezzar had another dream about this great tree. And in verse 7, then the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, the diviners came in and I related the dream to them, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. But finally, Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belshazzar, according to the name of my God, in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. And I related the dream to him, saying, O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery baffles you, tell me the visions of my dream, which I have seen along with his interpretation." And of course he did. And even after Nebuchadnezzar died, his son Belshazzar needed Daniel's assistance. You remember Belshazzar, or I guess we could say Belshazzar, in Daniel chapter 5 was having this debauched feast and a hand appeared out of nowhere and wrote something on the wall that caused great concern to Belshazzar, and he wasn't sure what to do. Nobody could interpret uh, what the writing meant, what it said. And in chapter 5, verse 11, one of his associates said, there is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, and in the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. This was because an extraordinary spirit, knowledge, and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned and he will declare the interpretation. And of course, Daniel came and interpreted the handwriting on the wall. I read all those references for this purpose, that while we can't know the exact identity of these magi, I think it's safe to say that they were descendants of the magicians and astrologers of Daniel's day. And it's interesting, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word used to translate wise men in Daniel is the same word they used to translate wise men in Matthew chapter 2. 
And I think because of Daniel's prominent position as the chief magi during the Babylonian and Medo-Persian empires, the other magi undoubtedly learned a lot from him about the one true God and the plans that he had for the Jews through the promised Messiah. And surely his prophecies were held in high esteem and were handed down through the generations. In fact, they were likely placed in the libraries of Persia. And so this new generation of wise men may have pulled Daniel's scrolls off the shelves and were studying his very precise prophecies concerning the coming of the Messiah. I mean, you have Daniel chapter 2, uh, the vision of the, the, the statue there where there was four kingdoms and then this rock, this stone hurtling from heaven came and destroyed that statue and, and conquered all of those kingdoms. And then you have Daniel chapter 9, the, the, the vision of the 70 weeks, which pinpoints the exact time of the arrival of the Messiah. And, and, and that 70 weeks vision, it provides a prophetic timeline of the coming of Christ. And so they may have done the math and realized that, whoa, this, the king has been born. And at the same time, they were examining the heavens because they were into astrology and, and astronomy, and they saw this star that completely perplexed them, but it also served to them as another indication that, that a great king had been born in Jerusalem. Again, they're from Persia. Uh, they may have been aware of the prophecy of Balaam. Remember that guy, Balaam? Um, who was from the town of Pethor, which was located on the Euphrates River near Persia, and in Numbers 24, 17, this is what Balaam had said, quote, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Seth. So here was a prophecy of some coming conqueror, some coming king, and his coming would be signified by a star of sorts. Now, there's various explanations for that star. Some believe it was a comet or supernova that the Magi saw and, and followed to Bethlehem. Others say it was, was um, a Jupiter or a convergence of the planets, Jupiter, Saturn, maybe Mars. Um, there is actually ancient scientific evidence that, it, that some kind of astronomical phenomenon did happen during and around the time that Jesus was born. And so, of course, God made the stars. He, he controls the planets. Uh, he, he could have used any of those things to guide the Magi to his son. But perhaps the, the biblical phenomenon that most closely resembles this star is the Shekinah glory. And this may have been the same manifestation of God's presence that led Israel from Egypt to the promised land, remember that, that, that uh, cloud by day, that pillar by night, pillar of fire by night, this perhaps was the same glorious light that shone on the shepherds when they received the announcement of, of, of Christ's birth. So again, this could have been the Shekinah glory that looked like a star to the Magi. And again, even as we just learned about the Magi and Daniel, their job was to solve mysteries. They were like uh, the ancient Indiana Jones, right? They were 
they would follow the clues to find the treasure, to find the, the artifact. And so they, they put two and two together and they jumped on their camels or maybe their Arabian horses and rode to Jerusalem and inquired about where the king was born in fulfillment of this prophecy. And so when they arrived in Jerusalem, they didn't ask if the baby existed, but where, he, where was he? Again, this is how confident they were of, of their interpretation of the revelation that God uh, had given Daniel. And that Daniel had left them. And so I think these wise men were looking for Daniel's Messiah. And the only time this word Messiah is used in the Old Testament is Psalm 2 and Daniel 9. We'll jump ahead to verse 11, continuing the story here. Well, look at verse 9. It says, after hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so when the Magi finally found the promised king, they bowed down, they worshipped him, and they gave him precious gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold was the medal of kings. What would be a king without gold, right? And so this perhaps signified Christ's royalty. They also gave him frankincense, which is what it sounds like. It's incense that was used in offering sacrifices to God. This perhaps was an indication of the high priestly ministry of Christ or simply his deity. And then they gave him myrrh. And myrrh was used to embalm dead bodies, which perhaps was foreshadowing that Jesus was born to die for the sins of the world. You may remember from the Gospels that myrrh was mixed with wine to create an ancient anesthetic offered to Christ on the cross, which he refused. Myrrh was also what was used with spices to bury Jesus. Notice verse 12, and having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left, their, left for their own country by another way. The Magi had a dream in which they were warned by God. Not to go back to Herod. He was a bad guy. He wasn't being honest with them. So they took another route home. And uh, by the way, if, if there was an entourage, uh, this again was God's providential protection of these men who had come, because that wouldn't have been easy to sneak out of town, right, with a large amount of people, but they went a different way. Now, that little phrase, by another way, they left by another way or a different way, at the risk of allegorizing or or spiritualizing this text, give me a little grace here, I can be a little Spurgeon-esque, because he was uh, famous for that kind of thing. 
Um, but there does seem to be a double meaning here that they not only left differently than when they came literally, they literally went a different direction, but they left differently figuratively, spiritually speaking. And I would suggest to you that these magi got saved. And their lives were never the same. And I wouldn't be surprised at all if we meet these men in heaven. And don't look for the three guys in the corner with the crowns on their head, okay? Because those aren't going to be the guys. You know, Cornelius is the one that we typically consider the first Gentile convert to Christ in Acts chapter 10. I would submit to you that the Magi are deserving of that recognition. And so like the Magi, I want to ask you this morning, have you met Jesus and had your way of life completely transformed, completely changed? Or are you just simply plodding along day after day, same old, same old, and are you looking for some, something to change? You know something needs to change. And maybe up to this point, you, don't, you didn't know what it was. Well, it's Jesus. It's Christ who has the power to change your life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things pass away. Behold, new things have come. Notice verse 13 Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. It may have been the same angel that had announced to him the birth of Christ. He said, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet out of Egypt I called my son. So Joseph immediately got up after being warned by the angel, took Mary and took Jesus and fled to Egypt, which is about 70 or so miles away. Um, Some commentators point out that the gift that the Magi gave him was more than enough to pay for their travel there, for them to live there for as long as they needed to. And Matthew quotes Hosea 11.1 here, out of Egypt I called my son, which originally was a reference to Israel's deliverance from Egypt, God calling his people out of Egypt, but Matthew expanded that meaning by showing how Israel's deliverance from Egypt really foreshadowed Christ's return from Egypt when he would be called back into Jerusalem, into the promised land to be the savior of God's people. And of course, we see here when Herod found out that the Magi had outsmarted him and not given him the location of the child, he flew into a jealous rage and attempted to eliminate his young rival by going on a killing spree in Bethlehem. And I can't help but see Satan behind all of this, that Satan used this diabolical monster to try to once more get rid of that promised seed of the woman that we learn about in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when God was cursing the man and the woman and the, and, and the serpent for their sin and rebellion. 
he gave them a promise of hope. And that was this seed of the woman talking about Jesus. And ever since then, Satan has been trying to, to kill, to, to stomp out that seed. I never thought about this before until looking at this text for, t- for this morning. Um, but I guess I always kind of envisioned this, this, this massive massacre of hundreds of children, little boys. But in reality, there was not a lot of kids that age in a small village like Bethlehem. So I think it's more likely that there was perhaps a dozen or so kids that were slain. And nevertheless, it was a, a time of great mourning. Notice verse 16. It says, And when Herod saw that he'd been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which had determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. The first mention of Bethlehem in the Bible is in connection with the death of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel, Genesis 35. And if you remember, Rachel died giving birth to Benjamin and she was buried in Ramah, which is close to Bethlehem, where Herod's ruthless, senseless, senseless massacre took place. And this, the, the weeping over the children who had been killed by Herod was prefigured by Jeremiah. This is where uh, Matthew's quoting Jeremiah 31, verse 15 here. By the mourning of Rachel, who is considered the mother of the nation of Israel, and she was weeping when the children of Israel were taken into captivity by the Babylonians. And so Matthew applies the same verse to this occasion as if Rachel was crying once again, mourning once again for her children. So the question remains, what is your response to Jesus Christ this morning? Are you belligerent like Herod? Are you one that kind of shakes your fist at God and his son, Jesus Christ, and don't want anything to do with him? You reject him? Or maybe you're simply indifferent, like the Jewish religious leaders. You're sitting here this morning saying, yeah, all this is nice and good and quaint and cute and acceptable, but I could care less. It really doesn't matter to me. It doesn't apply to my life. Or are you reverent? Like the Magi. I think the point of this whole story is that we would find Christ and offer him our lives in worship to him. And I would simply say this, if you seek Christ in faith, like the Magi, you'll find him. You will find him. Again, J.C. Ryle has some compelling thoughts. 
on these verses. He says, these verses show us a striking example of faith. The wise men believed in Christ when the scribes and the Pharisees were unbelieving. They saw no miracles to convince them. They heard no teaching to persuade them. They beheld no signs of divinity and greatness to overawe them. They saw nothing but a newborn infant, helpless and weak and needing a mother's care like any one of ourselves. And yet when they saw that infant, they believed that they saw the divine Savior of the world. Raoul goes on, he says, we read of no greater faith than this in the whole volume of the Bible. It is a faith that deserves to be placed side by side with that of the penitent thief, the thief on the cross. The thief saw one dying, the death of a criminal, and yet prayed to him and called him Lord. The wise men saw a newborn babe on the lap of a poor woman and yet worshiped him and confessed that he was Christ. And then Raoul concludes with these words. He says, let us walk in the steps of their faith. Let us not be ashamed to believe in Jesus and confess him. Though all around us remain careless and unbelieving, have we not a thousandfold more evidence than the wise men had to make us believe that Jesus is the Christ? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? The son of God who was sent to save you from your sin? Have you confessed him as your Lord and as your Savior? Have you bowed your knee to him and committed your life to worship him and to serve him and to obey him? If you do, then I promise you, you will go home differently than when you came this morning. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this familiar text. And Lord, we admit that we've got a lot of it wrong. We've read a lot into this over the years that we shouldn't have. But nevertheless, there's some rich truth here. And really, the example of the Magi is what we're walking away with today. How they had only one response to the Christ child, and that was to bow before him and worship him. And so, Lord, we want our lives to be lived like that, lives lived in worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I ask that if there's anyone here who has yet to bow the knee to Christ, that you would grant them repentance, you would grant them faith, that you would open up their eyes to see, their ears to hear, their heart to feel and understand And that you would grant them the faith to believe that Jesus is the Christ who is sent to save them from their life of sin. And that they would give up their life today to follow and obey him for the rest of their life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.